Cool. Uh, so welcome to How to Sell Drugs, the podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. Uh, our podcast is, produ is produced by Lucy Goods. Uh, if you or someone you know is a smoker, we encourage you to try our wide-ranging uh, line of delicious and satisfying nicotine products uh, at lucy.co. Um, so today we have a uh, wonderful guest lined up, Brett McCulley. Um, who is a, getting his PhD in economics and has been doing some research into the economics of drugs. So we thought we'd have him on to discuss um, some of his research and some of the economic research into drugs in the field. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, as always, we're joined by my co-host, David Rintel. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going, John? Cool. Um, so let's start a with a little bit about yourself. Um, so you're at UCLA. How did you kind of get there? Can you take us through your path to, to get into this PhD program? Yeah, so I was kind of always interested in economics. My dad was actually an economist, and I really liked uh, debating policy and politics. And I always felt like economics was one of the harder kind of thing phenomena to understand. So I'm like, well, maybe I should take classes in it since it's so hard. And so I took classes in undergrad at the University of Virginia. Um, thought kept finding things interesting started doing some more some research stuff eventually wor started working at the Federal Reserve Board for a couple years um, and then uh, applied to PhD programs uh, and got into UCLA's got it got it um, what's the biggest uh, economic uh, debate that you have going with your dad oh that's that's a good question I feel like we agree on a lot of uh, you know physical and monetary policy things okay. but we might we might disagree on uh, what to do about drug policy. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's got to be crypto. That's the biggest economic rift between the olds and the youngs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's <laughs> your crypto right. take? Uh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I went to like a uh, lecture by Martin Feldstein, who's like this famous Harvard economist, yeah. and someone, a young person, asked him in the audience, like, "What you know? What do you think about cryptocurrency?" And he's just like, "I hope it. I hope it disappears." He's like <laughs> he hates it. <laughs> Yeah, Paul Krugman, totally same right. thing, yeah. uh, famously debated someone from Andreessen Horowitz and took a very <laughs> hardline stance against it, but remains to be seen if he'll be right. Um, so I, I think we know a little bit about what got you interested in economics. Um, when you talk about uh, macro and micro, which one would you say you focus on most? I'd say I'm more of a microeconomist with a focus on empirical uh, methods. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier that you were focused on kind of international economics. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the research that you've done in the past? Yeah. So international economics is just uh, considering the economics of when things move across borders or move across space. So whether that's people or capital or goods. Um, and so I've, I've looked at questions related to trade and migration because um, it's you know, obviously a really important public policy. Sure, sure. So when when one of those kind of seminal papers comes out, uh, how do you see it kind of working its way through from the you know halls of academia into the real world? Yeah, I guess I don't see it. There's no direct line in general. So for like very carefully, very like narrow changes, sort of tweaks, which where a policymaker can be like, you know, press this button and like now I'm going to automatically enroll people in. 401ks, for example, or sure. increase that. Like they can do that, but if it's like, you know, you're you're researching something on like our how our migration policy should change, that kind of fuels in uh, like a civil society debate, 
Uh, and yeah. they cite this evidence, uh, which then might be used to change policy. But yeah, I don't have a, you know, I, I don't think policymakers or a senator read an economics paper and they're like, oh, gee whiz, I should I should change my policy views. Like it's yeah, a, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a long tail. It takes a while for this to actually work its way into the public and into the discourse, and then eventually, I guess the 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 public needs to be putting pressure on its policymakers to really adopt the kind of the latest and greatest economic research really right and the economists provide some of the evidence for that yeah and it also needs to probably be boiled down to a soundbite because yeah. if it's not something that can be put on a poster most politicians aren't really going to run with it um, yeah. if it's too difficult to understand they're probably going to have a trouble pitching it to the to the american public is there a good example of economists producing some kind of work that swayed policy that just like went straight from academia into government? Is there like a similar yeah. example? I mean, they're, they're, it's a long uh, transition between like publishing a paper and getting the policy actually implemented, but like for matching markets, um, uh, so New, New York City matches students to charter schools and that was done using a, a system developed, I think in the 1960s or 70s by some Nobel Prize winning economists who uh, worked on, on that exact problem. Um, but interesting. Yeah. interesting. Um, so now you're kind of starting to research the economics of drugs. Mm -hmm. What kind of spurred your interest in that specifically? So I, I think you know, my, my, my research question is kind of along the lines of we've had globalization happening for, you know, the last few decades or, you know, the second round of globalization. Um, are there kind of unanticipated consequences of globalization in terms of if you, uh, if globalization happens for legal goods and for immigration do, is it also happening for illegal markets like drugs um, and that's a quest a kind of a margin that hasn't been looked at by economists um, that I'm really aware of and so that answering that question in a, a rigorous way was was really what interested me in the area. so practically speaking does that mean like let's just use like the United States Mexico border mm -hmm. so if an increase in globalization is happening. It means we're sending them more stuff, they're sending us more stuff. So the border is more active and it's easier for people trying to import or export drugs across the border to hide their wares in a pre-existing shipment or under the guise of like a fake company. And so yeah, exactly. that would be yeah. the relationship that you're looking for. Do you see an outsized proportion of drug imports do you see drug imports increasing as globalization increases? Is that fundamentally what you're saying? Yeah, so we, we've seen that there's been a, for a, quite a while, at least for a few decades in the 80, 80s and 90s and part of the 2000s, a decline in the price of illegal drugs, uh, which was associated with an increase in uh, trade and globalization um, you know, in, in the world economy. And, and yeah, the, the idea is just as you said, it's sort of like the needle in the haystack. If the haystack of legal trade keeps growing, then finding that needle of illegal drugs in there uh, can become harder and harder. And one of the sort of anecdotal examples that's kind of interesting is in the most recent uh, El Chapo trial, right? Like you would uh, stick uh, cocaine or, or marijuana in, um, I think it was like tomato uh, sauce cans or something. Mm and ship it on a train it was all you know had legal invoices and it looked like legal trade go up to chicago where they'd unpack it and then distribute it uh, into the united states 
and that type of th- those type of examples are, are fairly common. And so it sounds like you're saying that uh, economists would use the price of drugs as a data point for whether there are more or less of them because of the supply and demand curve. So if there are more drugs in the country, the price is lower because it's easier to get them, and so people have to charge lower prices. I've heard also that law enforcement uses a metric. They assume that they catch some percentage of the illegal drugs, and so then they can look at how many, what the size of the shipment is. And so are those the two main data points? Would you say the main data point as an economist is the price, or are there other factors? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly fundamental to any model of supply and demand. You you want to have data on prices and quantities. So uh, you kind of look at seizures, like you said, what, what law enforcement seizes. You assume that that's proportional to what the uh, actual trade flows are, and then you ha- observe prices, which is like the DEA collects data, for example, on drug busts, where they'll have an undercover informant who will like actually get the, uh, will buy some drugs or have drugs bought from them, and they'll record that price and send it to some centralized database. Is the DEA one of the best sources for economic data about drugs, or do you look to the UN? Are there other, like, kind of, what are the most popular sources to analyze? Yeah, so it's going to depend on the particular question. So, uh, you know, if you want to ask about a question about drug abuse, drug use, and consumption, then you're going to go to, uh, like, the National Institutes of Health or, or CDC. I, I think they have some databases on drug sure. use. But if you want uh, something on prices, then you would probably use the DEA database. Um, where it, it is just built off of this uh, this database based on um, on drug seizures or, or drug busts and informants. You can't just pull the students in your intro to econ class at UCLA. <laughs> I know. That's I a know. pretty large student body <laughs> who's probably some percentage are consuming drugs. That's, that's true. That's true. But they might be buying the whatever the UCLA drugs are. Well, why don't you then allow them to anonymously submit them for testing so then you can test the purity <laughs> yeah. and then you can oh back yeah. your way out into the pure it's price. I somehow don't think that they're in deep with the El Chapo <laughs> tomato shipments in Chicago at that level. Well, those are, I mean, those are different things. Oh, you're saying the price per, per kilo? I mean, I assume you would collect prices all throughout the supply chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it incre- the prices increase kilo like dramatically when you go from like wholesale to retail market got it um and so th- they have like for major drug busts uh they do have some data on those and that's kind of the wholesale price for large uh amounts and there's you know but then once it's uh at the retail level at the street level um prices go up a hu- by a huge amount and that's that's true throughout the, the supply chain like the farm gate price for uh co- coca leaf is like so much lower for for opium it's like the these poor farmers in afghanistan who are growing opium are getting you know a thousand dollars or something for the amount of uh heroin that's going to be produced from that that's going to sell for like one hundred fifty thousand dollars in the u.s wow uh you said farm gate what does that mean exactly right so that's just uh you have farmers who are growing coca leaf or opium poppies which are the uh the raw materials for cocaine and heroin respectively uh, and those are grown by farmers, and they sell it to uh, some some person who's going to take that and process it. Um, and so it's the price paid by that person the person to the farmer. Oh, yeah. got it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, how does that compare to other commodities that are not drugs? 
in terms of the farm gate prices to ultimate product? I, I don't know exactly, but my sense is that it's uh, quite a bit more of a multiplier. Just yeah, I mean, you just described a 100x multiple, and yeah. I doubt that that's the case with something like avocados. Yeah, because so much of the value added is just like literally getting it from that farm gate to the consumers in the wealthy countries, which is all the trafficking, which takes so much you know, effort and money and, and risk. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you ever get concerned that you're going to gather this data and then go to your professor and he's going to be like, I've been paying so (laughs) much more for my drugs than what you've (laughs) been. Why didn't you tell me sooner? (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, you know, (laughs) not a widespread problem (laughs) in in academia. I imagine I do think it's funny that that, yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of great research done, um, but, you know, it, it, it must be fairly far removed from what's actually going on on the ground versus you know the DEA who's actually like on a drug bust and maybe that's that's true but there is uh, one exception that I I can think of so uh, Sudhir Venkatesh was a sociology PhD student at University Mm -hmm. of Chicago in 1988 he was trying to figure out what he'd do for his dissertation and he started going to one of the public housing projects uh, nearby and he befriended this uh, leader of a local drug gang JT, pseudonym JT. This was in Freakonomics, right? This was in Freakonomics. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. this. Yeah, exactly. So he he befriended this guy, and and he, he saw him just kind of going around, like, doing, just talking to people, and, and then going to go bowling or do whatever. And he's like, y- you know, your, your job isn't that hard. I bet I could do it. And so he's <laughs> like, all right, well, why don't you try to do it for a day? And so he did actually, you know, he's a drug dealer for a day. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, but at the end of this, when JT and company were all put in prison, he got data from for the gang um which included like all their sales all their costs wages for people um you know all sorts of data that you couldn't imagine getting otherwise and so that was probably like yeah actually getting one's hands dirty yeah i uh, remember uh, uh, similarly uh, a uh i think it was a podcast or, or someone did an analysis of uh, just how Somali pirates run their operations and they have timesheets and all the same accounting measures that you'd yeah. expect from any businesses. Uh, and it's just funny because from the outside, you often think about, you know, drug dealers as kind of like devil may care attitude, very yeah. uh, rough and tumble, but, you know, it is a business and it is often run like right. a very well-oiled machine. Yeah, and like also in the El Chapo trial, when you were hearing, I was hearing about like, Oh, he hired like the IT guy to set up their networks. It's like, oh right, they have to set up networks of too. Of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. It is, it is funny to kind of reframe and get in that mindset. Uh, you mentioned something about how prices are tracked, and I, w- I was wondering, is there anything close to kind of like a consumer price index or inflation metric for drugs that's traf- that, that's tracked as kind of a basket of goods as opposed to just a single, you know? Because mm-hmm. I imagine, as you mentioned, you know, the price, the farm gate price, is different than the street price. Um, like how how can economists say you know drug prices are decreasing in America? Is there kind of a standard metric, or is it just something that everyone knows is true because, you know, there are because that's just kind of what the data intuitively says. Yeah, I think I, I think it's just based on kind of our best guess based sure. on this incomplete data because obviously you can't send a Bureau of Labor Statistics person <laughs> out with a clipboard asking, "Excuse me, sir, how much is your crack cocaine?" You know, you have to. Uh, <laughs> You know, you have to use these kind of like how much in what are informants getting on the street? Sure. Uh, what are drug busts netting in terms of price? Um, but yeah, th- there might be something better out there, but I think it's it's pretty hard to. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine when they get people to cooperate against others, the other people in their organization, they 
work out the economics and they probably submit that data or it's accessible in some way. Yeah. Um, but I also really like the idea. So sometimes in this podcast, we uncover really interesting jobs uh, that nobody would ever knew or no, no one would ever know exist uh, as an option. One of the uh, jobs on a previous podcast was a NFL drug tester, mm. and they like to bust people when they're on vacation. So these NFL drug testers will be dispatched to you know, random Caribbean islands to surprise the player and mm -hmm. say, here, submit for a drug test. I like the idea that the DEA is maintaining a network of Confederates um, throughout the United States who they don't bust because they want them to continue over a period of time to submit the data on how much they're paying for kilos of drugs. And so you could get a job where your job is to buy cocaine, <laughs> buy the kilo on a regular basis in a major metropolitan area. I think you just have to call up the DEA and submit an application, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think the data construction might be that they get it from local law enforcement. I don't know if they have their own informants on the ground, but... Uh, Sure. Maybe. Maybe. maybe yeah. Something like that. Well, we'll have to get um, someone on from the DEA. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so we talked about a couple interesting ways economists gather drugs. Maybe um, <coughs> it would be good to go into some of the uh, some of the research that we that we kind of passed back and forth beforehand. Um, let's talk about the 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 Mexican drug war. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that that Melissa Dell paper? and uh and kind of maybe brief david a little bit on it and and then we can kind of dive into some of that yeah well first some background on the mexican drug war so uh yeah. you know a lot of drugs a lot of marijuana and cocaine travels from colombia to the united states somehow it used to go through the caribbean but the u.s increased their enforcement to the Car caribbean such that a lot of the trafficking moved to mexico and eventually in 2006 uh i think jose calderon was elected president uh, on a pro-enforcement, pro-crackdown ticket, and he said, I'm going to you know, end this trafficking and the power of the cartels, and so I'm going to bring in the federal military to crack down on this and try to put an end to the cartels. And so that's what happened. They tried to do that, um, and it, it was associated with a huge increase uh, in violence in the country, so a lot, of, a lot of drug murders and so on. So Melissa Dell steps in to try to understand what is the effect of an increase in enforcement on violence in a country? And so, obviously, if you just like look at, you know, a place that has a lot of drug violence, and then, uh, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> so it it sounds like you were saying that unexpectedly, you know, you would think that if you're going to enforce policy, that you're going to crack down on cartel leaders that you're going to result or, or have results that show fewer drugs, less violence. But in fact, we didn't talk about how drugs were affected, uh, but violence increased. And an analogy that I think we hear or that we see in popular culture is if you go after the head of a cartel, then it leaves a lot of chaos with the underlings. And each one of them says, well, I should be head of the cartel. And that results in some violence. Is, is that kind of what you're saying was the, the result yeah, showed? Yeah, that, that's some of... So, so, so the results effectively showed that uh, if the pro-crackdown party was elected mayor of a municipality, that violence in that particular municipality spiked. And the, the idea was that um, when you crack down on the local incumbent that's controlling that territory, now it looks weak to other drug organizations, and they might try to 
uh, scoop up that territory, which leads to, uh, to violence and fighting. And then in addition, she also found that uh, drug trafficking would be routed around the place in which the crackdown was happening, which would thereby increase violence in surrounding municipalities. So, so what should you do? So what should you do? On the other side of the border, there's another study done by a different set of researchers where they looked at the effects of medical marijuana legalization uh, in U.S. states on uh, drug trafficking-related violence. And they found that when uh, a locality legalized mar medical marijuana, that uh, drug deaths closer to the border, uh, or at least on a route to that locality, would fall. And so it would these two studies together would kind of suggest that uh, violent crackdowns on drug traffickers is not really the way to reduce violence. So this sounds like a no-brainer for us in California because we've legalized medical and then subsequently recreational marijuana, but what about cocaine? Should we, should we legalize cocaine? Well, that, that is a question. So with, with marijuana, I think it's a little clear because we don't think the social costs of consumption are very high. We think they're, you know, roughly zero maybe. But for cocaine, I guess I'd have to learn more, or economists would have to learn more about the uh, what the social costs are. Because usually we think of if someone becomes addicted to a substance, they're going to commit more crimes in furtherance of that addiction. And you have to take that to into account when you're um, choosing which public policy to do. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that uh, violent crackdowns is going to be the solution if you want to reduce usage. Um, there, I think the economist approach would be what are the costs and benefits of different approaches. So then it's like, okay, what are the costs and benefits of decriminalization versus prohibition versus legalization and taxation? And that's uh, kind of a more complex question to. So it seems into. like a lot of these fundamental questions come down to are you taking a supply side pro policy or a demand side policy? Um, and at least in the Mexico example, it seemed like trying to cut off the supply was largely ineffective because they spent, I think in the paper it said $9 billion and crime actually increased. So it had a, you know, a, a negative net benefit. Right. So, um, so is it fair to say that like economists are, are kind of advocating for more uh, kind of demand side policies and trying to reduce the demand of illegal drugs or is it kind of more complicated than that? I imagine that it's, a, like you said, on a per-substance basis very much so, right? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, I think so. I think economists' guiding principle here is not that they're morally opposed to any particular sure. drug. So it's really just the costs and benefits, like you said. Sure. And so when we look at supply-side interventions, like crop eradication, interdiction of drugs across borders. Wh what was that? Uh, crop eradication, like uh, trying to... Uh, defoliate. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was coca one. leaf or opium poppies. Okay, so uh, so actually destroying the raw materials themselves. Right. Yeah. So if you try to do that, or try to intercept the drugs on their way to their destination, which is the more supply side interventions sure. versus um, trying to have public health sort of public relations campaigns to uh, tell people about the dangers of drug yeah. use or have specific individual level treatment. Yeah. Um, Either legalize programs. the drug or help people not be so addicted to them. Right. So, and give them other options than, than 
you know, going and buying increasing amounts, which ultimately fuels the cartel and the cartel will figure out ways to traffic in different areas or, or restore their fields. Um, I'd love to go into that, that crop eradication study because I I found that really interesting. So, um, like, could you, you can probably give a brief summary of exactly what, what happened in that paper, but. Yeah. So basically they want to understand the effects of crop eradication on, cultivation. So and this is in Colombia. This is this is in a Colombian context where they would have planes fly overhead, they douse a field with some uh, defoliant which would, sure. you know, just should kill the plant life there. Yeah. Um, they'd have to sort of prepare the area and it's a really expensive thing, but there's this nice nat- what we call a natural experiment in economics where uh, 10 kilometers in from uh, the Ecuadorian border, Colombia and Ecuador agreed not that Colombia would not eradicate any uh, plants uh, between zero and 10 kilometers from the Ecuadorian border. Sure. And so you get this nice natural experiment because it's kind of a control group where yeah. you're not allowed to have any defoliation and then a treatment group where you can on yep. the other side of the border. But both sides are pretty similar in terms of their geography and income of residency and so forth. And, and their propensity to grow coca leaf? It, yeah, and their propensity to grow. Interesting. Um, you know, before the, yeah. the, so the like change. So it's like the ultimate science experiment, basically. Exactly. And so then you can ask the question of, well, how effective is this defoliation in reducing cultivation? Sure. And so what this group of researchers found was that it's not very effective. Uh, it's You can defoliate about one acre or one hectare, and then uh, it reduces overall cultivation by 0.02 yeah. hectares. It's like 3%, right? Yeah. Something like that, or yeah, 2%. It, yeah, it, it's a very uh, marginal um, uh, reduction. And so to reduce the amount of cultivation of coca leaf by one acre, it's going to cost you $80,000 wow. for the flyover, for the prep, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. on. And so you know, it, it takes more than one uh, acre to make a kilogram of cocaine. So okay. when you scale up that, that figure, you, you know, uh, assume making some assumptions about the production process, you get that it costs about uh, over a million dollars to prevent a marginal kilogram of cocaine from entering the United States if your chosen method of prevention is eradication. Wow. And then, so the authors go on to compare this marginal, you know, this very costly uh, uh, program with other other interventions. So if you try to interdict or inter intercept the um, drugs before, th- you know, before they leave Colombia, that costs about $175,000 for per the marginal kilo. kilogram. Got it. If you try to do some kind of public health intervention, have like a, maybe a better version of just say no, Yeah. Um, that would cost you like $60,000 per kilogram of reduced consumption. Got it. If you try to do a, a treatment program, then it's about $8,000. Wow. So, like you said, it, it really kind of falls between like these supply side interventions are extraordinarily costly, yeah. whereas the demand side intervent- interventions are much less costly. And yeah, I mean, I, and that makes perfect sense from a business perspective because if you know, as David and I run companies, and and if one supplier doesn't want to help us make a product, we'll talk to another supplier pretty quickly. Um, this has happened in in all of our businesses. Um, but if a customer doesn't want to buy our product, there's nothing we can do. Right. And so, I mean, it really it really seems almost intuitive. Uh, I do want to dive a little bit more into that um, because intuitively, like bur- literally burning the crops seems to be very effective intuitively. It's burned, it's gone, or it's defoliated with a chemical. 
how does it come back so quickly? Do, do they do they explore that at all? Like, or is the cartel just moving it to different areas? Or yeah, so it's this is basically part of the whole like deviation from an econ 101 yeah. uh, type of model of like, well, you attack the supply and then price goes up because there's less quantity. Oh, got it. The issue is that in the real world, there's a lot of different ways in which uh, producers are going to react to an, to an enforcement action upon them. Mm -hmm. And one of those is, well, first of all, they're going to increase productivity of the non-defoliated uh, cropland. Yeah. So they're going to you know, put more fertilizer in, they're going to use more intensive labor practices or whatever, sure. because they know that some of this stuff is eradicated, price is going up for me because yeah. I'm not eradicated, so that's great. And then also you see a lot of uh, reallocation from, uh, say, parts of Colombia that were intensively defoliated or just from Colombia to um, Bolivia and Peru. Got it. Which is kind of the old, you know, squeezing the balloon and the air just going somewhere else. Yeah, got uh, it. Which happens typically in... In, in economics, sort of yeah. in just in general. So I feel like you're saying something maybe without really saying it because you are saying that supply-side interventions are too expensive, demand-side interventions are best, and demand-side interventions typically work when things are legalized and decriminalized. So in essence, you are saying that you think cocaine should be legal. <laughs> well... <laughs> I, I guess I'm undecided about decriminalization versus legalization. Um, I would have to, I'm not a, a health person, so I need to understand more about sort of the health externalities and the crime externalities and addictiveness of it. But I think to me, decriminalization uh, is perfectly reasonable. So what does that mean, decriminalization? So decriminalization, if we consider a, a real actual, uh, real life example would be Portugal, where uh, someone can face administrative consequences for drug possession, small amounts for personal use. But what, is, what is an administrative consequence? So that means that you, you might be put in front of a board of like a couple social workers and a lawyer, and they're going to tell you you need to go to a treatment program or some other kind of uh, uh, intervention. Otherwise, we're going to fine you. But there's no, there's no jail sentence for use or possession of small amounts of illegal drugs got it but there is still um, so rehab or a large fine yeah. you choose and that's and for all drugs in in portugal correct pretty as much as far as i know yeah. yeah yeah okay and so that would be the model of decriminalization that you would be referring to yeah yeah and then there's there's also of course like the dutch model where um, I, I don't think it i don't think it's necessarily all drugs are legalized but some drugs are legalized in tax um, and I, I think that's a, a perfectly reasonable model for something like marijuana, and it might be reasonable for other drugs. I just, you know, we need to... There is some economic data on cocaine and heroin when they were illegal at the uh, beginning of the century. That's I wonder, right. yeah. have, have those data sets been revisited recently, or is the quality of the data just not good enough, or... or things are so antiquated because we're just in such a different place? I mean, what what do those data sets tell us, if anything? Are they used? I, I think that they should be used more because they are super interesting. Um, there's one study back in 1995 which looked at the legal colonial monopoly that the Dutch had in Dutch East Indies, or now present-day uh, Indonesia. Um, and there they kind of estimated some some elasticities or, or sort of responsiveness of drug use to changes in prices that we're interested in as economists. 
Um, but I, I think there definitely a lot more could be done with those data. The issue is that they're historical, they're kept probably in some deep, dark basement, and it's hard to get at. Um, but yeah, I, I think that they absolutely should be utilized more. Wow, so it really just hasn't been digitized yet, and that's, that's part of the problem? Yeah, and this is something that, uh, in a different field from mine, economic historians do all the time. They Got go it. into some basement of archives and they get like you know 10,000 sheets of paper they photocopy or whatever and have some hapless RA uh, digitize it put it into a database but, wow. but the problem is you come out of that basement and you say cocaine should be legal <laughs> yep. and they're like he's been spending way too much time in that basement yeah and we're not saying that cocaine should be legal we're we're just having a theoretical discussion well, I'm not. You are saying <laughs> it should be legal, which is fine because you're an economist and a scientist, which is fine. That's funny. Uh, do you have a favorite movie about drugs? Oh, that, that's a good question. I mean, favorite TV show is pretty obvious is The Wire. The Wire is um, great. I mean, I wish you know, I I wish we had data like from season four when they did the Hamsterdam experiment. Oh yeah, where they centralized all the illegal drug trade into one corner yeah. or a few corners of the city. Because then you could actually see what happens when uh, there's a sort of a, a frictionless yeah. market for drugs. Yeah. Um, so they yeah. have that in uh, where is that Denmark? Yeah. In Copenhagen, oh there's really? a particular area of the city where they allow cannabis sales. Oh. Um, but I, I think I interrupted. You were about to say something. No, no. Uh, just uh, that Hamsterdam experiment in The Wire is that based on reality? Not that I know of. Okay. Yeah, but, but I mean it I think would be it's cool nice if it idea. was because we could. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about uh, Sicario a lot when we were talking about kind of the Mexican drug war. Mm. Um, one of the things that is touched on in the paper is that when um, when you kind of like cut off the head of one cartel, it creates um, just a lot more infighting between all the others. And That's right. I think I think the message of Sicario, or kind of was uh, was just that in many cases the CIA wants a single con cartel that they can understand and control as opposed to chaos, which they have trouble uh, right. kind of controlling. Yeah, well, I mean, in looking at uh, Japan, you essentially have seen that model uh, emerge, right? The, the Yakuza are highly organized, yeah. and they're recognized by the government. They have offices, really? and they communicate with the government. And I think over time now, they're losing their stature in society, and they're potentially being attacked and phased out but that's i mean essentially what you're saying is yeah. the government decided there's going to be a certain there're going to be a certain number of black market things in economies we'd rather have them be organized and be able to have dialogue with the people in charge of them and be more or less unchallengeable right because if they can be challenged then then that's where the fighting starts right this is fascinating yeah I, I never now that i'm thinking about it you know the, the message of zakaria is very is very kind of like it's sad that the world is this way but when you look at the kind of the economics of the situation it's much more rational than the movie kind of makes it out to be i guess i don't know who's the actor that plays the sicario isn't that benicio del toro yeah i thought the message of the movie was don't mess with benicio del toro <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it too what, what is the plot of this movie um i don't know can you summarize it well <laughs> Yeah, it's essentially, well, I mean, the first one and the different, uh, the second one are different, but the first one was essentially um, they're deliberately trying to weak. Spoiler uh, alert, yeah, by the spoiler way. Spoiler alert. alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, the U.S. government is basically trying to uh, crown one cartel as the head cartel and destroy the other ones so that they can 
uh, have organization and they think it'll lead to less bloodshed. Basically the opposite of the experiment that you detailed earlier. Instead of attacking many different ones, uh, kind of based on uh, yeah. opportunity, they just mm -hmm. decided to anoint one as mm -hmm. the head cartel. I see, yeah. yeah. Well, I think some of that uh, is somewhat uh, from real life. Like I think some of the stuff that we learned from the El Chapo trial was about the DEA using uh, information from El Chapo's organization somehow to uh, take out some of their rivals. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you when you look at the data. It does seem like um, if you have to choose between one organized cartel and you know many messy s smaller organizations, the bloodshed can be a lot less if you have one organized cartel. Although that is. Uh, but it, yeah. it's maybe not palatable from a public policy perspective to say, it I'm going to let this ride. It, it doesn't necessarily also have to be one monopolist cartel. It could just okay. be that you don't take out the heads of cartels because there's sure. some research showing, you know, as long as you have some stable set of cartels with a stable set of leaders, they make packs Got and it. kind of maintain the peace. But when you continually uh, knock out the leadership, then uh, the peace crumbles and violence increases. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it sounds like this makes perfect sense for drugs. What about other black markets? Do you think that, are you essentially for the decriminalization of most black markets? How do you draw that line? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I, I think I, along with most economists, would again go back to what are the relative costs and benefits? What are the sort of social externalities for society for uh, consumption of the different goods. So when you think of like prostitution, I feel like there's there's no reason to me that uh, it shouldn't be even legalized just because the um, working conditions for the prostitutes would be significantly improved and that's worthwhile uh, for that uh, particular uh, w market. Um, in terms of guns, I mean, there's a lot of sort of spillovers in terms of people dying from the guns, so I think that's a little harder, but I, I'm not super familiar with Yeah, the, or, uh, or in an even more extreme example, like nuclear weapons. The black market for that, you know, certainly has potentially severe social consequences to, or I guess externalities, really. Right, right. right. Yeah, so it, I think it all depends it on what yeah. the specific item yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for drugs, it seems like, at the very least, decriminalization makes sense. Interesting. Uh, well, this is great. Do you have anything else, David? No, no. I think I think we've covered it. I yeah. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, guys.